Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> Uh, we've kind of been slowly progressing through a kind of a, I guess it's a mini-series in one sense, but it's kind of been a sporadic mini-series as we've kind of doing some other stuff on the Thursdays. But we've been walking through the uh, I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And uh, just as a reminder of those who haven't been here, (coughs) uh, in the book of John, Jesus makes seven uh, I Am statements where uh, and obviously the, the term I am shows up in a bunch of places in the book of John, but there are seven in particular where Jesus uses the I am statement, again referring back to the Old Testament concept of, of Jehovah and, and Moses in the bush and that, kind of, that whole idea of God revealing his name. <clears throat> and it's not just I am, uh, it is that, but it's I am and then he equates that name with something. And so, he, you know, if I said I am a teacher, right, or, or I am a plumber, or I am a circus clown, or whatever it is, right, for you, that your I am, of your identity is being associated with whatever this is. And so what Jesus is doing, interestingly, is he's tying his, his name and his identity with these characteristics, or these metaphors, or these pictures. And it becomes even more beautiful when you recognize it's not just, well, he is this, but that he is claiming the very name of God himself, that the name that God spoke to Moses in the bush, I am, Jesus says, not only is I am, but I am a shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the door, right? And there's seven of these pictures, if you will, <clears throat> of Jesus saying, you know who I am? You, you want to know my character? You want to know my attributes? Do you want to know just who I am? Here, let me describe this to you. I am, and he gives the name. Uh, so some time ago, we were looking at the first one, which is I am the bread from heaven, or I am the manna that came down from heaven. And again, <clears throat> Jesus is going back into the Old Testament imagery, and he says, hey, remember those times we were walking in the wilderness, and you guys were desperate for the food, and you guys, you guys started complaining to Moses, and Moses said, all right, God, what do you want to do? We, we need some food. And God says, oh, I have this stuff. It's going to be great. And he, you know, it comes with the dew in the morning, and, and everyone looks at the stuff and just goes, manna, which means, what on earth is that? And that's what the name kept. So it probably wasn't the name of the stuff, but everyone just started calling it manna because no one knew what it was. And so they just kept saying, what is it? What is it? What is it? What's for, what's for breakfast? What is it? You know, what's for lunch? I don't know. What's it? What is it? What's for dinner? What is it? You know, and so they just had manna for everything. Uh, Jesus says, that's who I am. So I am, hey, the, the bread that you guys had to go and gather every day, hey, the bread that came down from heaven every single day, Hey, so the daily provision that you needed for your life all throughout the journey in the wilderness, Jesus says, I am that. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am your nourishment. I am that which satisfies. I am that which you need to gather every single day. Hey, I am that which supplies. I am. I, I am. <clears throat> now, we mentioned this 
previously, but it's amazing that, that I am statements that Jesus is making, all of them are in the present tense. In other words, this isn't like, well, back in the day, I, I was the bread, but now it's grown moldy, and I'm, and I'm not so sure I want to be bread anymore. See, that's not in the passage. It's not, well, maybe one day in the future I will become bread. That's not in the passage. The concept is that in the present tense, Jesus says, I am the bread. Right this very moment. So whenever it is present tense for you, you can, you can, just, you can be guaranteed that Jesus is the bread. By the way, you always live in the present tense. Some of you are daydreamers and you think you're in the future. Some of you are, you know, rehearsing the past, but you always live in the present. And isn't it amazing to think that Jesus, Jesus is in the present tense? That he's not just some past tense thing, he's not just some future tense hope, he's in the present tense. That's encouraging. That whatever it is that I'm dealing with right now in my present tense, he's smack dab in the middle of that. Why? Because he's present tense. And he's present tense is my bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. Uh, <clears throat> two weeks ago, we were looking at the second one of these, which is, I am the light. And I want to pick up on that again and, and want to look at this idea of Jesus being the light. Uh, have you ever experienced <clears throat> complete, utter darkness? Now, obviously, in our modern world, uh, we don't, there's, there's nowhere we can really go where it's like pitch black unless you're like underground. Right? So have you ever gone to like caving, right, and you turn off the flashlight, and it's like dark. Not just dark, but like dark, dark. Uh, one of the things I love to do when, when we're in Israel is uh, we walk Hezekiah's tunnel. And so Hezekiah, during, when, the, when he's surrounded by the Assyrians, built this huge tunnel, and uh, it's just it's an incredible, incredible engineering feat. And uh, the water still runs through it today, and it goes to the Pool of Siloam. And, you know, it's, it's probably about, I don't know, ankle deep, you know, six, ten inches maybe at the most. <clears throat> and so you're slodging through this, and it's pretty narrow at times, because they chiseled this whole thing out of the, out of the rock. And about halfway through the, the passageway, <clears throat> I usually stop the group, and I say, all right, here's, here's the plan. Uh, in John chapter 9, Jesus took this blind man, and he spit and made some mud and put it on his eyes, which we'll talk about even just one in a second here. And uh, he says, all right, I want you to go to the Pool of Siloam and wash it off. And I says, hey, we are in Hezekiah's tunnel, and we are on our way to the Pool of Siloam. So, hey, we should experience what he experienced. Now, his, his was a lot worse because he had to go down a whole bunch of steps. And, but I have everyone turn off their flashlights. And so we're in the middle of this tunnel, rocks all over the place. And I said, all right, let's start walking. And I don't, I don't know if you ever had those kind of experiences. But, you know, you're about, you know, seven, eight inches in water. You're trudging through this tunnel. And at times, you know, it's kind of shoulder width apart. Sometimes the, the ceiling can go, you know, from 30 feet high at times where there's these, you know, cracks up to a time where you have to be ducking your head. But now it's pitch black, and you have no idea what's in front of you. And so you're, you're kind of making your way, and you start moving slower because you don't, you're not going to run through the tunnel in pitch blackness. And you start putting your hands on all the, you know, the ceiling on the wall so you, can, you, know, you don't bump your head and all that kind of stuff. There is this awkwardness in pitch blackness. When, when you absolutely cannot see, there's, a, there's almost a need, a craving for light. And it's amazing that you know, after we trudge our, our way through a ways, We'll turn our lights back on, and it's amazing. You can just feel the, oh, all right, I can see. I don't have to bump my head anymore. And I, I mean, I'm, there, there brings a calm. There's a refuge. There's a, there's a peace that comes in the middle of having the light. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, I am light? That, that I, I am that in this world. 
Now, as you go back into the Old Testament, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that when you, when you begin to look and study out this idea of light, God is tied into this idea of light all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it begins to bespeak of like his character and his nature. Maybe a better way to even start this is if you go to the book of Revelation, we know that in the future, there's going to be no need for a sun or a moon or stars. Why? Because God himself is the light. This is Revelation 22.5. That God is the light. And so therefore, hey, we, we don't need the sun and the moon anymore. Why? Because the very presence of God, he is light. And he's going to be shining forth and he's going to be the brilliance that we see. He's going to be the light that we need. That there will be no darkness. There will be no shadows in the days to come. Which is kind of a neat thought. In fact, that actually goes back and harkens to Isaiah 60. Uh, in Isaiah 60, verse 19, Isaiah writes, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Do you recognize there is coming a day when the Lord will be our everlasting light? It's a great idea. Just, oh, I just love it. It's a brilliant, brilliant thought. But what I want to do is I just want to really quickly read you a bunch of passages in the Old Testament. And you don't, don't turn there. Just listen to these. <coughs> But again, there's this, there's this undercurrent of God is light. Uh, that he is, it's not that he has light, somehow just emanating out of him is light. Listen to these. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is the, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Job 29, verse 2 and 3. Oh, that I were in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Daniel 2, 22, speaking of God, says, The light dwells with him. Micah 7, verse 8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. It's interesting when you, when you get into like the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah, and he says, Do you know what that coming Messiah is going to be? Speaking of Jesus, light. He's going to be bringing light. Listen to this. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 1, 6, and 7. Isaiah says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. Do you recognize that? Here is this Messiah, Jesus. And what is one of the things he's going to be doing? Bringing light. Because he is light. Again, Isaiah 9, 2 <clears throat> says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So it's interesting as you begin to get this undercurrent throughout the Old Testament is, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. In fact, First John says that. That, hey, there's this God who is emanating this overwhelming light. Hey, the Messiah is coming. He's going to be bringing light. So isn't it fascinating in John chapter 1, at the very beginning of John's book, he says in verse 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
or does not comprehend it. Uh, when we were talking about, <coughs> in, the, in the last uh, episode, talking about the light, uh, we were looking specifically at John chapter 3, uh, verse 19. And we were pointing out the fact that here's Jesus who is, who is coming to the world. He's, he's br- bringing the light into the midst of the darkness. And yet, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 19, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus says, hey, here are these people. I, I, I am the light. I've come into the world to bring light. But what's going on? The world is full of darkness because they love their darkness because their deeds are evil. And I was pointing out awkwardly that that word there in John 3, 19, for, for men loved darkness is the Greek word agape. And I said that's awkward because the way that we've always heard the word agape or agape uh, in the church today is, oh, it's God's love. It's the God kind of love. And that is true. It's this unconditional, unrelenting, hey, you can't earn it, you can't get rid of it. It is, it is relentless kind of love. And God has that kind of love. In fact, a few verses before that, John three sixteen, for God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son. And so Jesus says, but here's, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men agaped, agaped darkness rather than light. And I says, isn't it interesting that, that Jesus used that word in that passage? And again, don't, don't go crazy with all this, but again, if we translate it God love, then that passage gets awkward. But the idea of agape or agape is this, is this it's unrelenting. It's this unconditional. It's just, hey, uh, Jesus on the cross, you realize, was beaten. He was bruised, a crown of thorns on his head. He was nailed to the tree. And he was still pouring forth the redemptive love of, of God. What is that? That's agape. That you can, you can nail Jesus and he's still going to love all, love all over you. Because you can't earn it, you can't get rid of it. Jesus says that's how people love their darkness. That here's this darkness. Oh, don't we love our darkness? Oh, we just love our sin. That I'm just participating in my sin and it's so delightful. Now I know that my sin's going to destroy me. And I know it's going to bring corruption, but I want it anyway. That's stupid. Isn't it? But we do it all the time. Because i got to have it. What is it? That's unrelenting. That's an unconditional love for your sin. That even if your sin brings trouble, even if your, your sin brings a maybe a momentary pleasure, but then it de- never satisfies, even if it brings an emptiness, even if it brings hurt and destruction, even if your sin... How many people have you ever met who smoke in cigarettes and you're like, don't, don't you know that gives you cancer? I know. Well, I can't stop. I love this stuff. And you're like, that's dumb. I know, but I, I can't. I just can't. I can't let it go. Why? Agape. That even if it's, see, it doesn't matter what the, doesn't matter what the darkness does to me, I'm still going to love it. Jesus says that's how people live. Isn't it? As you look at the world today, and Jesus says, here I am, I'm light, I've come into the world, but what, what, have, what have men done? They've, they've turned from the light. And that makes sense to you, right? Have you ever gone camping? You know, the old trick is, you know, everyone's eyes have gotten adjusted to the dark. And you walk up behind someone with a flashlight and say, hey! And they turn around and you go, Psh! right? And they're like, Phew! and it, it is, it's like you get nauseous and you're like stumbling around. And, and the light hurts, right? And they punch you. At least that's what I used to do. <laughs> you know, like, you know. Why? Because it's like, hey, that stuff hurts. That light offends. That, hey, when you've grown accustomed to darkness and light shows up, that, that's offensive, and Jesus says, hey, I'm the light. I'm the one that actually brings salvation. I'm the one that brings hope. 
and yet because people have loved their darkness so much, it, like, it offends them, and so they turn away from the light and they keep embracing their darkness even though the darkness is destroying them. That's a sad reality, isn't it? Well, I need the light so it'll, it'll change the darkness, get rid of the darkness. And it's probably going to be painful. So when we say that, woo, Jesus is a light, do you want the light? You recognize the moment you say, yes, I want the light. There may be pain involved because true light is searching. True light hurts. It, it is penetrating. But that's actually what we need, isn't it? Now, if you turn to John chapter 8, <clears throat> where uh, Jesus speaks the I am statement here, uh, it's important to note the context of the statement itself. Uh, in John chapter 7, uh, John chapter 7 through John chapter 9 is all in the same context. Uh, John chapter 7 begins with Jesus coming down to Jerusalem <clears throat> during the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is a fascinating feast. It's one of the three fall feasts. Uh, it's an eight-day feast. Uh, doesn't that sound good? Eight days of feasting. Oh. Uh, which happens between uh, mid-September and mid-October of our calendar. And it was one of those pilgrim feasts, so, so all, uh, all the Jews are required to come to Jerusalem, and, and here they are, they're, they're all over Jerusalem, and they're camped out, and, and one of the reasons they would, they would gather together is to celebrate what God did back in the wilderness. And if you remember the wilderness stories, here they are, they got out of Egypt, and they're wandering, uh, they're wandering the wilderness for 40 years, and during that time period, they set up these little booths, these little tents, these mini tabernacles, if you will. Because, hey, they had to be portable. They couldn't build, you know, they can't build houses of brick, you know, or, or mud or whatever in the middle of the desert. Why? Because they're moving around for 40 years. You know, so they would set up their tent and, you know, spend maybe a year over here, and then God would move them over here, and then they'd come over here. So they had to be these temporary dwelling places as they were heading off to the promised land, waiting these 40 years. And so once they got into the promised land, God says, hey, look, I, I want you to celebrate this tabernacle thing. And it's interesting, and there's a lot of layers in this, and we don't have time to get into all of this, so you can, you can study this out later. But it's interesting when you look at this tabernacle thing, one of the purposes of the feast was to remind us of God's very presence, that he has come and tabernacled with us. That we have the tabernacle symbolizing the very presence of God. The, the Holy of Holies is inside that. And wherever we go, he goes. Why? Because his presence is with us. And so, hey, when we are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, woo, we are celebrating the fact that his presence is right here. Uh, another one of the reasons for the festival is this idea that uh, it's a reminder to the Israelites that during those 40 years of wandering, we are pilgrims on, on the journey somewhere. In other words, hey, the wilderness is not our home. That, that, that hey, we were on this progression, that, that there's this promised land awaiting for us, that there's this, there's this better place, that we are pilgrims in this land. And it's interesting to me that that once they got in the land, that was their promise, God says, I want you to, rem oh, hey, I want to remind you of this feast. So for, for eight days, you're going to build these little tiny huts around Jerusalem, and you're going to live in the little tiny huts, and, and that way you remember what, what I did. But I think it was also a reminder of saying, this place isn't even your home. That even here you're a pilgrim awaiting a better place. That's what the writers of the New Testament said. That, hey, this, this earth is not our home that we are pilgrims heading to a better land. So I think there's, a, there's an undercurrent even in this festival of every year as they came together for these eight days and built these little booths and slept in the booths and celebrated what God did in the wilderness to say, hey, gay, hey we, were, we were a pilgrim back here heading to a better land. It's almost a reminder saying, 
even now we're pilgrims. So we have a land. God gave us a land. Praise the Lord. But, but it's like we're still pilgrims heading to a better land. Just like we as Christians are pilgrims heading to a better land. I think there's an undercurrent in that. Now, during the festival, it's interesting. <clears throat> uh, once they're in Jerusalem, uh, the, high pri- or the, the priests, uh, every, every morning, the priests would walk down these steps from the temple all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. If I remember correctly, there's like 500 steps. It's quite a journey. And they would walk down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would uh, grab a little pitcher of water, a little cup of water, and they would go back up to the temple, and they would take the water, and they would dump it upon the western side of the brazen altar. And it was a reminder during these eight days of the fact that God provided the nourishment, the, the provision, the water that we needed in the wilderness. And isn't it interesting? If you turn back a page to uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse uh, 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, again, Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, think about this, the priests have just been taking this bowl of water from the pool of Siloam, dumping it upon the altar. In the middle of that, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, chapter 7, verse 37, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Isn't it interesting that during this time of remembrance that, hey, God provided the water in the wilderness, Jesus says, you thirsty? Remember in the wilderness, you were thirsty, you cried out, God provided the water. Hey, that, hey the, the priest is bringing up the water, dumping it on the altar. Remember that whole thing that, you're, that we're rehearsing right now? Jesus stands up and goes, woo, you thirsty, I'm it. And he's setting the stage for something, that all the fulfillment of all that you need is found in him. Now, as you get into chapter 8, again, we're in the middle of this, the, the feast stuff, and what's interesting is every evening of this eight-day feasts, the priests would light these four massive candelabras in the, in the court of the women of the temple. And they say that the light shining from these massive torches was so huge that it would light up the entire hillside of Jerusalem. That you could, like, in the middle of the night, you could see everywhere. It was brilliant light. And it was done for a couple of reasons. One, it was a reminder of the pillar of fire during the time of the wilderness wanderings. So here we are living in these little booths, and we were guided by, remember, a cloud by day and a fire by night. And so we're lighting these massive fires in the middle of the night to remind us that, hey, God, God was our pillar of fire. Now, in the middle of all that setting, Jesus stands up <clears throat> in chapter 8, uh, verse 12. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, in John 8, 12, listen to this. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. Isn't it interesting in the middle of that setting, in the middle of the setting where they're celebrating the light, in the middle of the setting where they're celebrating the presence of God, in the middle of the setting where there, there are these, these massive torches enlightening the entire hillside, Jesus says, do you know who I am? I'm the light. Hey, you want to see clearly? I'm it. Hey, you want to not walk in darkness? Hey, I'm it. And it's interesting He's, again, just like he was doing with the, the bread and the wilderness thing, he's tying himself back to the wilderness. By the way, it was in the wilderness that God spoke to Moses and said, I am. And Jesus says, hey, I am the bread. Tying back to the wilderness. Here he says, hey, I am the light. Again, tying back to the wilderness. I find that fascinating. Now, as you follow the context through, uh, <clears throat> right immediately after that, in John eight thirteen, the Pharisees come up and say, hey, you, you cannot claim this. That, hey, if you're going to make a witness, there has to be more than one witness. There has to be at least two to three witnesses. 
And so Jesus says, well, I'm a witness, and my father is the witness. So, hey, you want to go by your law, and it has to be two witnesses of this fact? Hey, we're both declaring this. And then he gets into this argument with the Pharisees. It's interesting that as you walk through the whole argument in chapter 8 of the book of John, the undercurrent of the whole argument is the, it's like the Pharisees are saying, Woo! We can see clearly. We know the word of the Lord. Hey, we know exactly what God is doing. And Jesus, we think you're a little blind. You're a little off here. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. I'm the one who's light. I'm the one who sees clearly, and you guys are a little foggy. And that is the undercurrent. There's this misunderstanding where the Pharisees think they're in the right, that, hey, we have all the light, and, hey, you need to, you know, kowtow to us. And Jesus says, no, I am the light. I am that which gives clarity. I am that which you're supposed to be seeing. So then it's interesting to me that as you come into chapter 9, again, it's all in the same context. In chapter 9, it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So here's a man living in darkness. And here's a man who doesn't want to be in darkness. And his disciples asked him, saying, verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, while it's light. Night is coming when no one can work. Get this, verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he looks at the man, makes the, makes the mud, spits on the ground, makes the mud, puts it in his eyes, and says, I'm sending you to the pool of Siloam. By the way, Siloam means sent. So it's interesting. He sends the man to a pool called sent to wash the mud off his eyes and to see light for the very first time. The man comes back, and the Pharisees, gay, the Pharisees say, hey, what are you doing? Well, why, what's going on? There's healing happening. It's a Sabbath day. Hey, we do not do healing on the Sabbath day. There are six good days where healing can take place. Sabbath day is not the day. It's a day of rest. No healing allowed. And they get mad at the, at the man of the guy. And they're like, the guy goes, well, look, this man named Jesus came and healed my eyes. He brought light in the midst of darkness. And they say, all right, we, we want to we test this out. So they bring his parents into the, uh, in, in there. they're questioning him, saying, hey, is this your kid? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How did he get any sight? We don't know. Now, again, they said that because anybody who proclaimed Christ was going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And they're just like, well, look, he's an adult. Ask him. What, just get us off the hook here. <clears throat> and so, again, they asked the man, well, who, who made your eyes, who, who, uh, who removed the blindness from your eyes? And he said, Jesus. He's like, well, how did that happen? He's like, look, how many times do I have to tell you? I was there blind. And he walked up to me and he spat in my eyes. And I went down to the pool of Siloam and I came back and I could see and of course, I love the very end of this whole thing. Uh, they're arguing back and forth. And uh, he says, let's see, it's in verse, uh, uh, verse 26. They said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And you could tell this man's getting a little cheeky here. I love this verse. Verse 27, he answered and said to them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And of course, they get all bent out of shape saying, hey, 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 we are Moses' disciples. And they basically kick him out. And Jesus finds him and says, hey, here I am. 
Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees, again, are blinded? So here's a man who is blind, who's desperately looking for light and finds light. Here are these Pharisees who think they have light, but are completely blind. That, they, that they're missing the very one that all things are pointing to. That they're missing all things, and yet they think they're in the right. And Jesus, in the middle of all this context, two times, stands up and says, I am light. I am the light. Now, really quickly, I want to give you six quick ideas of how, how this practically applies to our life. That if Jesus is the light coming in the midst of darkness, you realize it, it means six things for us. Uh, number one, there's this whole idea of the presence. That, hey, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole, the whole picture of this is God has tabernacled with us. And Jesus says, I am the light. I have come to the world, which is this whole picture of, hey, I've come. And now you get to participate, have relationship with oh, me. There's this whole presence thing. There's this whole tabernacling, tabernacling idea. <clears throat> Again, uh, number two is this idea of direction. That back in the Old Testament, there was this pillar of fire. And what did the pillar of fire and the cloud by day do? See, it gave direction. Isn't it interesting that wherever the cloud or the fire went, that's where the Israelites went? When it stopped, they camped. When it began to move again, they walked. That the light was that which provided the direction. And that should make sense to you. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it's not just your word. I mean, the context is, yes, the word, scripture, the Bible. But you recognize it's the word is a lamp unto your feet. He is the word. That yes, it's, it's, we're, yes, we're talking primarily in text. But you realize Jesus is the light. He is the one that brings light to your steps. You want direction? Jesus. You want to know where you're going? Jesus. Who's going to give you direction? It better be Jesus. Why? Because he is the light itself. So if you want to see where you're going? Jesus. And by the way, just as a side note, he's not a spotlight typically. He's not going to show you three miles down the road of where you're heading. The word is a lamp, which means he's going to give you just enough light for the next step. And when you walk in obedience to that, you have enough light for the next step. So you may have a picture of kind of where you're going, but more often than not, we don't have a clear picture of where we're going to be in five years. Where, where are you going to be in ten years? I have no idea. Where are you going to be next week? I have no idea. But I have enough, I have enough light for today. So if you can't see far down the road, that's fine. It's a lamp. Uh, number three, not just the presence and not just the direction idea, there's this idea of provision and protection. Isn't it interesting that the, the fire, the pillar of fire in the wilderness not only gave direction, it was actually there for provision and protection. You realize that they're in the middle of the desert, which means in the daytime it's hot, in the nighttime it gets rather cool. So what does God give them? Provision. He becomes a cloud by day, fire by night. He's a cloud to shade in the heat of the sun, and he's fire to warm in the cool of the night. I think that's beautiful. That, that he actually, if you remember even the story with the Egyptians, that it's the fire, the pillar of fire that came down and stood in the gap between the Israelites and the Egyptians so they could make their way across the Red Sea. That he was their protection, that he was their provision, he was their warmth. Do you know what Jesus wants to be in your life? That. Uh, number four is this idea of conviction. 
that if Jesus is the light, he wants to shine his light into your life and illuminate all things that are shadows, all things that are full of darkness. And isn't it interesting that here are the Pharisees who are staring at the light itself, and they would rather choose darkness and blindness than embrace the light. And here's Jesus saying, hey, could you let me in? And will you let me go to every aspect of your being? Hey, would you let me just, hey, would you let me into the crevices of your life? Well, what if there's darkness? He wants to get rid of it because he is light. In him, there is no shadow. What does he want to do in our life? Remove the shadows. So would I allow him to come into my life and bring conviction? Would I allow his spotlight, to, his, his soul-searching light of the Holy Spirit come into my life and illuminate anything that is not as it's supposed to be? Hey, would I allow him to take his light and transform and change and alter anything in my life that doesn't belong there? Why? Because he's a light. And he wants to illuminate all the shadow areas. He wants to remove the shadow areas. Uh, number five is this idea of a refuge. Isn't it interesting that you take this little tiny kid and you say, all right, time, for, time to go to bed, and you turn off all the lights? A lot of kids are like, no! I need my nightlight. Some of us haven't changed. <laughs> we, 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 put it on our, we put it on our different banner, and that way it sounds better. We don't like the nightlight, I think. But, but you know, hey, we need, we need our diffuser mist going, and it has a light. It's hard to turn off, so we'll just leave that on, right? Or... Uh, Let's, let's leave the, you know, the porch light probably be helpful for safety and security, but I can see it from my window, and so that's, let's just leave it on just, just in case bad guys show up, right? So, you know, we, we cloak it as adults, but isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting as a little kid, there's a safety when there's light, that when it's dark, there's actually this unnerving. All the scary things happen in the dark because you can't see. Jesus, I am the light. There actually is no reason to fear. Because yes, you may be in the middle of a dark world, but I am a constant light in your soul. So there is actually no need to fear. I am the refuge that you are seeking. And I don't know about you, but you've ever had those moments where there's like this, you just have this weird sense and it's all, all the lights are off. And you're just like, I just feel odd. So you just turn on lights and you just kind of go, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> what is that? There's something about the light that breaks this, brings a calm and a, a safety and a, and a refuge. Jesus wants to be that in your life. And lastly, there's this idea that the light is or brings life. Uh, John 1 again, John 1, 4 through 5. In him, speaking about Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot trump light. Darkness has no ability over light. Darkness, there's never a battle. When we come in the room, we turn on the light switch. There's not like this spiritual battle going on between light and dark. And the darkness is like, bummer, you won again. See, darkness has no authority. Darkness has no power. Light always prevails. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, I am the light which produces the life. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, I love this. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you know what the light, when we walk in the light, does? It produces life within us. Because he is the light and the life. Can I ask you, are there dark areas of your life? Are there situations you're walking through that it has a hint of shadow? Are, are there habits or addictions or things in your past that have, that have grown dark? Do you know what you need? 
Jesus. He's the light. And you realize that as the light, it's all about presence. It's all about relationship. That he wants to be our direction. He wants to be our provision and our protection. He wants to bring conviction in our life and remove all the junk that should not be there. That he wants to be our refuge. He wants to be our life. And can I encourage you not to hold tight to the darkness thinking you have the light? See, the Pharisees had all their religious activities and all their religious duties, and they, they were doing, hey, they were checking off the lists, and they were doing all the right proper religious stuff, and because of that, they thought they had life. They thought they had light, when in reality, all they had was just nothing, just darkness. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 11, we'll close with this, but Luke chapter 11, verse 34 and 35, listen to what Jesus says. It's a great enunciation of what the Pharisees were doing in our passage. Jesus says, your eye is a lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you actually be darkness. See, there seems to be this idea that, oh, I actually have light. Yeah, I'm embracing light. Jesus says, be careful because that could actually be darkness. Perhaps I'll say it this way. If you are clinging to anything in your life, for hope, for salvation, for security, for presence, for, for a refuge, for, for provision, and it's not Jesus, then what you think may be light is actually darkness. Because the only one that brings the safety and the security and the hope and the salvation and the conviction and the refuge and the life is the light himself. His name is Jesus. And so if we are clinging to anything but him, you recognize that while you may think you have light, you actually have darkness. He is the light of the world. Jesus, uh, we live in a dark day. We live in a time when the, just the darkness seems to be increasing. But Lord, I am confident that you, if you are the light, which you are, darkness cannot overcome light. Which means it doesn't matter how shadowy, how dark the land becomes. It doesn't matter how much people hold tight to their darkness. It has no ability to withstand you. So, Lord, we just ask that you would blazon forth today. Would you, as the light, come and just enlighten, awaken, shine forth in this dark land? Lord, this world desperately needs revival. It needs light. Perhaps a little bit closer to home, Lord, our churches need light. Maybe even closer to home, our families desperately need light. Maybe even more closer to home, Lord, I need light that our lives need you to come in through your spirit and just blazing forth. Lord, would you go through every crevices of our being? Would you go through every aspect of our mind and our heart and our attitude and our motives, our actions? And Lord, if anything is not in the light, would you bring conviction? And through your light, would you just transform? Lord, we want you as our protection. We want you as our refuge. We, we want you as our life. We want you as our direction. We want you for the relationship. See, we want, Jesus, this is about you. And Lord, in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, you stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Lord, we need you. And just as light, just one little tiny candle can be seen on top of a hill, what would it look like in a world full of darkness if all of us contained light? Because our lives were just full of you.
See, what would it look like, Jesus, if, if we were marching back into our worlds and somehow this world just could not comprehend what's going on because, whoa, there's all these little lights popping up all over the place. See, what if our church gatherings wasn't just a, you know, woe is us and let's, you know, pat each other on the back. What if it was a time where the light gathered together and it became a huge torchlight? And somehow, on, as we gather together as the body of Christ, that the world just is, is being blinded because they're only seeing you. See, Lord, what would it look like if, if we truly begin to experience that you are the light? First of all, in our lives, and then in our families, and our churches, and in our communities, and, and in this world. Lord, you are the light of the world. And we are desperate for you. Lord, don't let us hold tight to anything, thinking it may be light, and in re- when in reality it is darkness. Don't, Lord, don't let us be like the Pharisees who, who had all the religious answers and were doing all the religious activities, but they were living in death and darkness. Lord, we want to walk in the light because you are the light. Lord, we love you. Blazing forth today in our lives. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name.